Section 16 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Third part of Chapter 4. In the early days of their acquaintance, Gervaise embarrassed him immensely. Then, in a few weeks, he became accustomed to her. He watched for her that he might carry up her parcels, treated her as a sister with an abrupt familiarity, and cut out pictures for her. One morning, however, having opened her door without knocking, he beheld her half-undressed, washing her neck, and for a week he did not dare to look her in the face, so much so that he ended up by making her blush herself. Young Cassie, with the casual wit of a born Parisian, called Golden Mouth Adult. It was all right not to get drunk all the time or chase women, but still a man must be a man, or else he might as well wear skirts. Coupeau teased him in front of Gervaise, accusing him of making up to all women in the neighborhood. Gouget vigorously defended himself against the charge. But this didn't prevent the two working men from becoming best of friends. They went off to work together in the mornings, and sometimes had a glass of beer together on the way home. It eventually came about that Golden Mouth could render a service to young Cassie, one of those favors that is remembered forever. It was the 2nd of December. The zinc worker decided, just for the fun of it, to go into the city and watch the rioting. He didn't really care about the Republic or Napoleon or anything like that, but he liked the smell of gunpowder and the sound of the rifles firing. He would have been arrested as a rioter if the blacksmith hadn't turned up at the barricade at just that moment and helped him escape. Gouget was very serious as they walked back up the Rue du Faubourg Poissonniere. He was interested in politics and believed in the Republic, but he had never fired a gun because the common people were getting tired of fighting battles for the middle classes who always seemed to get the benefit of them. As they reached the top of the slope of the Rue du Faubourg Poissonniere, Gouget turned to look back at Paris and the mobs. After all, some day people would be sorry that they just stood by and did nothing. Coupeau laughed at this, saying you would be pretty stupid to risk your neck just to preserve the twenty-five francs a day for the lazy bones in the legislative assembly. That evening the Coupeaus invited the Gouget to dinner. After dessert, young Cassie and Goldenmouth kissed each other on the cheek. Their lives were joined till death. For three years the existence of the two families went on, on either side of the landing, without an event. Gervaise was able to take care of her daughter, and still work most of the week. She was now a skilled worker on fine laundry, and earned up to three francs a day. She decided to put Etienne, now nearly eight, into a small boarding school on Rue de Chartres, for five francs a week. Despite the expenses for the two children, they were able to save twenty or thirty francs each month. Once they had six hundred francs saved, Gervaise often lay awake thinking of her ambitious dream. She wanted to rent a small shop, hire workers, and go into the laundry business herself. If this effort worked, they would have a steady income from savings in twenty years. They could retire and live in the country. Yet she hesitated, saying that she was looking for the right shop. She was giving herself time to think it over. Their savings were safe in the bank and growing larger. So in three years' time she had only fulfilled one of her dreams. She had bought a clock. 
But even this clock made of rosewood, with twined columns and pendulum of gilded brass, was being paid for in installments of twenty-two sous each Monday for a year. She got upset if Coupeau tried to wind it. She liked to be the only one to lift off the glass dome. It was under the glass dome behind the clock that she hid her bank book. Sometimes when she was dreaming of her shop, she would stare fixedly at the clock, lost in thought. The Coupeaus went out nearly every Sunday with the Gouget. They were pleasant little excursions, sometimes to have fried fish at Saint-Ouen, at others a rabbit at Vincennes, in the garden of some eating housekeeper without any grand display. The men drank sufficiently to quench their thirst, and returned home as right as ninepins, giving their arms to the ladies. In the evening, before going to bed, the two families made up accounts, and each paid half the expenses, and there was never the least quarrel about a sou, more or less. The Lorilleurs became jealous of the Gouget. It seemed strange to them to see young Cassis and Clump Clump going places all the time with strangers instead of their own relations. But that's the way it was. Some folks didn't care a bit about their family. Now that they had saved a few sous, they thought they were really somebody. Madame Lorilleur was much annoyed to see her brother getting away from her influence and began to continually run down Gervaise to everyone. On the other hand, Madame Lara took the young wife's side. Mother Coupeau tried to get along with everybody. She only wanted to be welcomed by all three of her children. Now that her eyesight was getting dimmer and dimmer, she only had one regular house-cleaning job, but she was able to pick up some small jobs now and again. On the day on which Nana was three years old, Coupeau, on returning home in the evening, found Gervaise quite upset. She refused to talk about it. There was nothing at all the matter with her, she said. But as she had the table all wrong, standing still with the plates in her hands, absorbed in deep reflection, her husband insisted upon knowing what was the matter. "'Well, it is this,' she ended by saying. "'The little draper's shop in the Rue de la Goutte d'Or is to let. I saw it only an hour ago when going to buy some cotton. It gave me quite a turn.' It was a very decent shop, and in that big house where they dreamed of living in former days. There was the shop, a back room, and two other rooms to the right and left, in short just what they required. The rooms were rather small but well placed, only she considered they wanted too much. The landlord talked of five hundred francs. "'So you've been over the place and asked the price,' said Coupeau. "'Oh, you know, only out of curiosity,' replied she, affecting an air of indifference. "'One looks about and goes in wherever there's a bill up. That doesn't bind one to anything. But that shop is altogether too dear. Besides, it would perhaps be foolish of me to set up in business.' However, after dinner she again referred to the draper's shop. She drew a plan of the place on the margin of a newspaper, and little by little she talked it over, measuring the corners and arranging the rooms, as though she were going to move all her furniture in there on the morrow. Then Coupeau advised her to take it. Seeing how she wanted to do so, she would certainly never find anything decent under five hundred francs. Besides, they might perhaps get a reduction. He knew only one objection to it, and that was living in the same house as the Lorilleur whom she could not bear. Gervaise declared that she wasn't mad at anybody. So much did she want her own shop that she even spoke up for the Lorilleur, saying that they weren't mean at heart and that she would be able to get along just fine with them. When they went to bed, Coupeau fell asleep immediately, but she stayed awake, planning how she could arrange the new place, 
even though she hadn't yet made up her mind completely. On the morrow, when she was alone, she could not resist removing the glass cover from the clock and taking a peep at the savings bank book. To think that her shop was there, in those dirty pages covered with ugly writing. Before going off to her work, she consulted Madame Gouget, who highly approved her project of setting up in business for herself. With a husband like hers, a good fellow who did not drink, she was certain of getting on, and of not having her earnings squandered. At the luncheon hour, Gervaise even called on the Lorilleur to ask their advice. She did not wish to appear to be doing anything unknown to the family. Madame Lorilleur was struck all of a heap. What? Clump Clump was going in for a shop now? And her heart bursting with envy, she stammered and tried to pretend to be pleased. No doubt the shop was a convenient one. Gervaise was right in taking it. However, when she had somewhat recovered, she and her husband talked of the dampness of the courtyard, of the poor light of the rooms on the ground floor. Oh, it was a good place for rheumatism. Yet, if she made up her mind to take it, their observations, of course, would not make her alter her decision. That evening Gervaise frankly owned with a laugh that she would have fallen ill if she had been prevented from having the shop. Nevertheless, before saying, it's done, she wished to take Coupeau to see the place and try and obtain a reduction in the rent. Very well, then, tomorrow, if you like, said her husband. You can come and fetch me towards six o'clock at the house where I'm working in the Rue de la Nation, and we'll call in at the Rue de la Coute d'Or on our way home. Coupeau was then finishing the roofing of a new three-storied house. It so happened that on that day he was to fix the last sheets of zinc. As the roof was almost flat, he had set up his bench on it, a wide shutter supported on two trestles. A beautiful May sun was setting, giving a golden hue to the chimney-pots, and right up at the top, against the clear sky, the workman was quietly cutting up his zinc with a big pair of shears, leaning over the bench, and looking like a tailor in his shop, cutting out a pair of trousers. Close to the wall of the next house, his boy, a youngster of seventeen, thin and fair, was keeping the fire of the chafing dish blazing by the aid of an enormous pair of bellows, each puff of which raised a cloud of sparks. Hey, Zidor, put in the irons, cried Coupeau. The boy struck the soldering irons into the midst of the charcoal, which looked a pale rose color in the daylight. Then he resumed blowing. Coupeau held the last sheet of zinc. It had to be placed at the edge of the roof, close to the gutter pipe. There was an abrupt slant there, and the gaping void of the street opened beneath. The zinc worker, just as though in his own home, wearing his list shoes, advanced, dragging his feet, and whistling the air, Oh, the little lambs! Arrived in front of the opening, he let himself down, and then, supporting himself with one knee against the masonry of a chimney-stack, remained halfway out over the pavement below. One of his legs dangled. When he leant back to call that young viper Zidor, he held on to a corner of the masonry on account of the street beneath him. "'You confounded dawdler, give me the irons. It's no use looking up in the air, you skinny beggar. The larks won't tumble into your mouth already cooked.' But Zidor did not hurry himself. He was interested in the neighbouring roofs and in a cloud of smoke which rose from the other side of Paris, close to Grenelle. It was very likely a fire. However, he came and lay down on his stomach, his head over the opening, and he passed the irons to Coupeau. Then the latter commenced to solder the sheet. He squatted, he stretched, 
always managing to balance himself, sometimes seated on one side, at other times standing on the tip of one foot, often only holding on by a finger. He had a confounded assurance, the devil's own cheek, familiar with danger and braving it. It knew him. It was the street that was afraid, not he. As he kept his pipe in his mouth, he turned around every now and then to spit onto the pavement. "'Look, there's Madame Bosch!' he suddenly exclaimed, and called down to her. "'Hi, Madame Bosch!' He had just caught sight of the concierge crossing the road. She raised her head and recognized him, and a conversation ensued between them. She hid her hands under her apron, her nose elevated in the air. He, standing up now, his left arm passed around a chimney-pot, leant over. "'Have you seen my wife?' asked he. "'No, I haven't,' replied the concierge. "'Is she around here?' "'She's coming to fetch me, and are they all well at home?' "'Well, yes, thanks. I'm, I'm the most ill, as you see. "'I'm going to the uh, chaussee clignon Court to buy a small leg of mutton. "'The butcher near the Moulin Rouge only charges sixteen sous.' "'They raised their voices because a vehicle was passing. "'In the wide, deserted Rue de la Nation, their words shouted out with all their might "'had only caused a little old woman to come to her window, "'and this little old woman remained there, leaning out, giving herself the treat of a grand emotion by watching that man on the roof over the way, as though she expected him to fall from one minute to another. "'Well, good evening,' cried Madame Bosch. "'I won't disturb you.'" End of third part of chapter 4 Recording by David Lazarus